0: This morning, we've been talking about how we're going to start the new year with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to jump back into our series in Matthew's Gospel. So I invite you to open with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. You'll recall that we were going through the Gospel of Matthew until we uh, made it to the Advent season, and we, we took a break from Matthew's Gospel to reflect on and to think on the coming of the Lord and the birth of Christ And now here in the new year, we're picking up where we left off in Matthew chapter 5. And this morning, what I hope to do is to to spend the next few moments looking at, reflecting on what lay before us. We're going to spend a a considerable amount of time working our way through this sermon that Jesus preached. But before we start getting into and dissecting the, the individual parts of it, It's good to have an idea of the whole before you start diving into looking at each individual piece. Uh, All of my kids this year got Legos, and it would be very hard to put them together without knowing what the whole thing is supposed to look like. If you just pull any one single piece out of that set, it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You really have to understand how that piece relates to the whole for it to have any value. And so I I think before we just jump in and start dissecting this piece and that piece and and what Jesus says about this here and about that there, that we we take a step back and we look at some big picture truths of of what this sermon is and what it's all about. Of course, it is affectionately called, I believe, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll see why it's called that here in the first verse, this sermon is a beautiful uh, collection of of Jesus' teaching that I believe that He delivered at one time. There is some people who argue about that, um, but welcome to Christianity where we argue about everything. So that's just how it goes. Uh, people want to argue about everything, but it is presented to us as a as a sermon that Jesus preached and declared, and so I have no reason to doubt that that is what it is. Uh, This is what Thomas Watson called a summary of true religion, the Bible epitomized. A summary of true religion, the Bible epitomized in these three chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so we're going we're gonna to look at this morning, at, by way of introduction, and as we, we, we look at a big picture today, we're going to start with just the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5. And some of you, if you're new to Destiny, you're thinking, wow, we're just going to look at two verses. We're going be, to beat the lunch crowd today. No, no, that's, that's not going to happen. Um, my assumption, I'm, I'm operating under some assumptions today. Uh, one of them is that you love Jesus. Uh, number two, that you love his word. And number three, that you didn't crawl out of bed on January 1, drive through the craziest fog I've ever seen in my life, to come from some, for some little sermonette today. That you're here to receive the word of God here today. And so that, that's my operating assumption. And so we're going to start the new year right. Even though it is just two verses, uh, we're, going to, we're going to really look at some... Uh, Uh, the context that surrounds this, I think it's going to be a blessing to you. So Matthew chapter five, verse one, it says this, seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. That's as far as we're going to go in Matthew this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this sermon that was preached, Lord, over 2,000 years ago. Lord, I pray that through our time today in your word that you would help us to see that these aren't just words for the past. Lord, that these aren't words for the future. Lord, these are your words for us right now. And that these words, this living word, Lord, this word that is alive and active and sharper than a sword would pierce our souls and pierce our hearts, even the hardest of hearts here today, pierce our hearts with your truth, that we would walk humbly before you to be a light in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Three things I want to look at today, I want to look at the occasion that's going to be the, 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 the context surrounding the sermon. I want to look at the preacher of the sermon, and then we'll spend some time here with an overview of the sermon. So the occasion, the preacher, and the sermon. When we get to the part on the sermon, we're going to look at some, some faulty ways that this sermon has been interpreted in the past, some errors, and then we're going to look at a, what I believe is the faithful way to interpret this sermon. And so, the occasion, the preacher, and the sermon. First, the occasion. This sermon is not preached in a vacuum. This sermon doesn't just come out of nowhere. It it comes to us in a a context and in a specific context. There's the literary context of, of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. And we're already into chapter five. And so, for us to understand this sermon, we need to understand what came before it, the first four chapters. That speaks to what this is and how to interpret it. But even beyond that, going beyond Matthew's gospel, is the historical context. The the other 39 books that came before it. The the way that God had been working with his people, the people of Israel. Both the literary context and the historical context are vital for us to understand, to, to rightly interpret these words. It would be wrong for us to just pull out this verse and that verse and rip it out of its context. When we do that, we can misapply it in in bizarre ways, and we don't want to do that. We need to look at the context. So firstly, the historical context. Let's look at that this morning. The historical context that Matthew is writing in. Again, God has been dealing with his people for 4,000 years. From Adam to to where Matthew writes is a a period of of 4,000 years. God specifically dealing with the the people of Israel for 2,000 years. From Abraham now to this point. And so there's a lot of, of history of God working with his people, his covenant people. God's desire for the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, his covenant people, were that they would be distinct from the world, that they would not be like the other nations. As you read the Old Testament, you hear that language a lot. God was was covenanting, entering into relationship with a specific people for a specific purpose. And these people were not to be like the other nations. God had given them his law to to separate them, to, to, to make them holy, separated from the other nations. The other nations who did not love God, the other nations who did not serve God. The idea is that if we love and serve God, we're not going to look the same as people who don't love and serve God. So it is true for us today, for those of us who love and serve God, so it was true for the nation of Israel, his covenant people. However, as you read the Old Testament, what you find is that for the most part, God's people had failed to do this. Israel had failed God. They had been unfaithful to the covenant that God made with them. And there were always a few people who remained faithful to God. They're identified by this term, the remnant, the remnant. God always has a faithful remnant. We're part of that this morning on January 1, gathered for service here today. Welcome to the remnant, the faithful remnant today. God's always got a few people who remain faithful to him. We see examples of that even as, as, as Matthew and Luke begin to tell the beginnings of, of the gospel of Jesus. We see Mary and Joseph who were people of the covenant and they were faithful to God. They loved God. They truly served God. They had real and genuine faith. You look at Elizabeth and Zechariah, the the parents of John the Baptist. They were also faithful. Uh, The story of Luke that continues when when Jesus goes to the temple of the the prophetess that is there, Anna, and and, and Simeon who's there, these people that are faithful, they're waiting for the promise of God. But by and large, Israel as a whole had not kept covenant with God. They had broken the covenant. They had not been faithful. They had not served the Lord. We see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament. I want to draw your attention to a very prominent example of this that helps us to understand what is going on here in this sermon. And to do that, if you'll go back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Back into the Old Testament uh, towards the beginning of the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 8. God at this point has delivered his people from Egypt, led them through the wilderness, established them in the land that he had promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had given them his law law to govern them, that they would know how to live in covenant relationship with their God, their deliverer, their savior. And the system that God had established was that he was to be their king. God was to be their king. God was to rule over them through his law. And that judges would, would be appointed righteous judges who would interpret God's law and apply God's law for God's people. But there wasn't to be a human king who came along and said, here's this law, here's that law, we're changing this, we're redefining this. No, God's established his law, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, and then there were to be judges who were to interpret this. But Israel became discontent with this setup that God had made. And we see this story in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel decides we don't want God to be our king anymore. We want an earthly king. We want a natural king. We want a human king to rule and reign over us. And look, let's look at this, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was one of the judges who would interpret God's law for the people and apply it to different situations and circumstances. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, And they took bribes and they perverted justice. Samuel appointed his sons. His sons were not faithful to the Lord. They would take bribes. They perverted justice. They did not rightly apply the law of God. Samuel should not have appointed his sons who were not faithful to the Lord. Nevertheless, he did. And now this sets up this tension between Samuel and the people of Israel. And we see this in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold... You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You see, what should have happened was they should have removed the unfaithful judges and put in righteous judges. But the people of Israel use. These unrighteous judges, Samuel's sons, as an excuse to set up what they really want. And that is to not be ruled by God, but to be ruled by man. Someone who can come in and apply their law, take away God's law. And guess what happens? That's exactly what happens. The kings that come in, that get appointed, do not apply the law of God. Instead, they begin to write their own law, make their own laws. And this is what the people wanted because they did not want to be like a separate nation unto God. They wanted to be like all the other nations. It says it here, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel and they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to do. For they have not rejected you, but have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall warn them solemnly and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. He says it clearly. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. They rejected this arrangement that God had of being their king. And so Samuel obeys the Lord. He warns them. Verses 10 through 18 is this stark warning of what will happen if you appoint a king. God says the reason they want to do that is because they want to serve other gods. They don't want to serve me. Samuel warns them. But in verse 19, it says, The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said no. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. That our king may be over us and judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he, repeat, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And Samuel goes about appointing Saul as the first king. Of Israel. This highlights for us the fact that God was to be their king. And it was His word that was to be supreme for His covenant people. These righteous judges were appointed to apply His word and His law. And where unrighteous judges came in, they should have removed them. But instead of removing the unrighteous judges, what they did is they removed God from being their king. And instead of having unrighteous judges rule over them, they ended up having unrighteous kings. And so instead of having a law above the judges, what they ended up bringing in was a king who was over the law. This was not God's design for his people. God never wanted them to be like the other nations. They were always to be unique and holy and separated unto the Lord. And it was his word and it was his law that was to do that for them. I want to show you one more passage from from the Old Testament. Again, this, this historical context that Jesus steps into and begins to preach his sermon So flip back with me just a few more pages to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is the second most quoted book of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes from in all of his teaching. The first is the book of Psalms. But then very closely after that is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is quoted over and over again. By Jesus, The book of Deuteronomy is, is unique because it is a retelling of the Mosaic law to the new generation that is going to go into the promised land. You'll recall that the, the first generation was unfaithful to the Lord and they perished in the wilderness. But as a new generation rises up and is about to go into the promised land, Moses retells them, re, repreaches to them the, the Mosaic law and gives it to them. And this is the, the, the passage of Scripture, the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes from extensively. Deuteronomy chapter four, listen to what Moses is telling this new generation as they're heading into the promised land. He says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the, Lord your God, that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. That's an and a group of people had risen up to follow after idols and God had judged them. He says, do do not add to my commandments, do not follow after idols, verse four, "but but you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today. See, I have taught you the statutes and the rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, so so the other nations, the surrounding nations. And and listen to what what he says. He says, when the other nations that surround you, when they see and they hear these statutes, the, the law of God, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And whenever we call upon him, he is there for us. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. So here he's setting up this multi-generational legacy of faith, that they are to hold fast to what God has done for them and hold fast to his word. But, But notice here that as the children of Israel go into the land with the law of God, the commandments of God, the righteous decrees of God, And and the other nations begin to take notice of these people who are not ruled by a king, but ruled by God. That it's going to set up, it's going to create a culture in that nation that's going to produce wealth, it's going to produce blessing, it's going to produce prosperity. And in fact, that is what it does. And Israel was to be a light to the nations reflecting the covenant of God, the blessing of God. That Israel was to show forth the goodness of God and the law of God and the blessing of God. And that as other nations were to take notice of the way God was blessing them, that it wouldn't just be the the, the light shining on Israel, but it would be Israel shining the light on God. That was God's purpose and God's design for his law and for his people. And this was to be a manifestation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the place where God rules and reigns. Old Testament Israel was to be a manifestation of that Kingdom, distinct from the world, distinct from the other nations, so distinct in in such a way that the other nations would take notice and say, where did they get these commandments? Where did they get these laws? It's not some king that delivered it to them. It's their God. And those who enter into covenant with this God experience his blessing, experience his rule, experience his reign. And it's into this context that Matthew begins to, to write his gospel. That We know that Israel wasn't faithful. We know that they set up a king over them. We, we know that the kings perverted justice. There was a small remnant that did remain faithful, but by and large there was not the, the manifestation of the kingdom of God in the way that God had designed it to take place. And so year after year after year of unfaithful king and idolatry and unfaithfulness, the the children of Israel going into exile, returning to the land. And by the time Matthew pins his gospel, there, there was just a handful, a small minority of people who were holding to the fact that God had promised. He had made promises that there would come a king, a deliverer, a messiah who would establish the kingdom of God. You see, every other time there had been a king in Israel, there had been the hope, maybe this is the king that will lead us in the ways of God. And then you read the story of the kings, and you read the story of of the book of Judges. You read all of these stories about these people that failed miserably. And it's into this context that Matthew writes A handful, a remnant of people holding to the promise of God that he would one day send a king. That's the historical context. Let's look at the literary context here this morning. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. The literary context. What have we seen so far as we've moved through Matthew's gospel? Well, into this context of the faithful of Israel waiting for a king. Matthew begins by writing uh, saying the book of the genealogy or the Genesis of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus the Christ, Jesus, the king. He is the Son of David, the, the rightful heir to the throne. He is the son of Abraham, the the one through whom God said all nations will be blessed. Matthew opens his gospel by declaring, Those of you faithful who have been waiting for the king, we have found him, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is that king. Jesus is that savior. Jesus is that son of David. Jesus is that son of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophets have spoken. And so we've seen that refrain over and over again in in Matthew's Gospel. When the angel comes and and meets with Joseph because Joseph is considering divorcing Mary because she's been found with child. The angel tells Joseph, all of these things have taken place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel which means God with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God's people have been waiting for. We, we saw it here later in, in Matthew chapter four, verse 16, that the people, that this prophet Isaiah had prophesied, the people living in darkness will see a great light. That on them in the shadow of death a new light has dawned. The the idea is that Jesus is the one who brings light into the darkness, who who is going to finally fully establish the kingdom of God where Israel had been unfaithful in the past. We see here in chapter two, as the wise men come, immediately this baby king comes into conflict with the the natural, the human king, King Herod. King Herod recognizes that this is a, a threat to my power, this is a threat to my throne, this is a threat to my kingdom, and he tries to wipe this baby king out. Immediately we see there's this conflict between the kingdoms of this world and those who will not submit to God and the kingdom of God. There is a conflict between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. But as we read the book of Revelation, what we find out is that through history, Jesus is taking the kingdoms of the world and he is subduing them to himself. So that at the end of history, what the heavens and the angels proclaim is that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Immediately, there's this conflict between righteousness and unrighteousness. Kings and rulers who will not submit to God and Christ the King, even as a baby. In chapter 3, again, the literary context There comes this wild man in the wilderness with a wild diet and a harsh message. He is rough around the edges. He eats locusts for breakfast, he dips it in honey. I still haven't tried it yet. I'm gonna try it one day. I still haven't tried it yet. Locusts and wild honey is his diet. He wears a simple garment, just a camel's hair, a camel garment tied with a leather belt. This prophet out in the wilderness, verse three, it says, here he is. His name's John the Baptist and he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea and he's preaching a message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. What God's people have been waiting for is about to arrive. It is on the scene. And he begins to call the nation to repent because they had been unfaithful to the covenant. They had served other gods. They had served idols. They had gone their own way. They, They were not living faithfully to the covenant. And so John the Baptist begins to preach to them, God's kingdom is about to arrive. You need to turn back to God. He begins to turn the nation back to God. In the process, he identifies the Messiah by baptizing him in the wilderness and the heavens open, and God himself proclaiming from heaven that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Chapter four, after Jesus is baptized, he heads into the wilderness. This is the real test. Will Jesus, the Messiah, will Jesus, the King, will he be like all the other kings? Will, will he lead God's people into sin? Will, will he be unfaithful to God? But Jesus, in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, he does what all the other kings failed to do. He points back to the law of God and he says, It is written. It is written. Jesus submitting himself to the law of God. Jesus not falling into sin. Jesus not following after the the course and the pattern of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of darkness. But rather Jesus conquering Satan in the wilderness. Defeating him by submitting himself to the word of God. Jesus emerges from the wilderness victorious over Satan. And he begins to preach, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the the literary context. There is a new king. His name is Jesus. He he is bringing with him the kingdom of God. It is here and it is at hand. And here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, that was my introduction. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now now the parallels here are, are unmistakable. Just as Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, received God's law and delivered it to God's people, making them his covenant people, so Jesus... The the new king goes up on the mountain to deliver from the new king a new law for a new kingdom. Yet, as this new king delivers this new law for this new kingdom, what we end up finding out as we read through this sermon is that it's not a new law at all. In fact, it's the same law. It's not some sort of disconnect or discontinuity. It's not anything Israel had never heard before. But what Jesus begins to do is take the law of God, which is perfect, the Bible says, and rightly apply it for his new covenant people. You see, there had been centuries of tradition and man-made rules that had piled up on top of God's law. And Jesus comes and he takes the law of God and he begins to rightly apply it for his new covenant people. That's what this sermon is. It's found in the Old Testament. It's not something new. It, it's, it, it sounds new because Jesus is reinterpreting it, but it's a reapplication of the law of God. There's no discontinuity between Sinai and where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. It is one and the same. And let us now look, that's the, uh, the context, the surrounding occasion. Let's look at the preacher. Let's, let's take a moment and just reflect on who it is that is proclaiming these words it's the Lord Jesus. And I would submit to you that there has never been a preacher like Jesus. That since Jesus passed away and rose again and ascended into heaven, I would submit to you that there has not been a perfect sermon. Because every sermon has come through an imperfect vessel. But this, these are the words from Jesus a perfect sermon, the perfect preacher. This is is Jesus, the word of God. John 1.1, he is the Logos, made flesh and dwelt among us. This is the word of God coming through the word of God, the living word among us. The word of God from the living word of God. And if you look at uh, the end, let's go all the way to the end of the sermon. Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus finishes preaching. Verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This word astonished, when the crowds heard Jesus preach, they were astonished. It means that they were stunned. They they were taken aback. It it rendered them senseless. It, it, It carries with it the idea of being struck in the head by a blow. Astonished. They had never heard anything like this. Charles Spurgeon says about the Sermon on the Mount, he says, where Jesus opens his mouth, let us open our ears and our hearts. The preacher, Jesus. The perfect sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. So let's draw our attention And there are closing moments here today to an overview of this sermon. I would submit to you that there is no higher standard of morality or righteousness that men are called to live by than is found in this sermon. This is, the Sermon on the Mount is the peak, the highest peak. It is the Mount Everest of righteousness and holy living. You will not find in all the Bible and indeed in all the world a higher set of morals than these. This is perfect morality. And this leads us to the question then, what are we to do with it? What are we to make of this set of Perfect righteousness, perfect morality. Christians have been wrestling with that question for a long time. What do we do with it? Does Christ actually intend for us to try to keep these laws and obey these words? Is that his intention in giving them to us? That we hear them and obey them? Before you say yes, let's just look at a few examples that are here... Just in the first chapter, just from chapter 5. In verse 20, Jesus says this about our righteousness. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine what people thought when they heard that. The scribes and the Pharisees in their mind are the pinnacle of righteousness. And Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed theirs if you're going to enter into the kingdom. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21 about anger. He says, you have heard it said of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable unto judgment. Jesus says, You thought the standard was murder. Well, no, actually, if you've been angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart, Jesus says. So so Jesus says, Your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees. Their righteousness is down here, and then I'm here bringing you a, a higher standard. Not even to be angry. That wasn't hard enough. Look at, look at what he says in verse 27. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I say, now I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's where you think the bar is. And Jesus just lifts it to the stratosphere. That that wasn't hard enough. Look at verse 43. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If that wasn't wasn't enough, verse 48, he concludes this, this list of morality by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. People sitting there might be tempted to think, Jesus, I'm not perfect. The the anger issue, the lust issue, the, the loving my enemies, Jesus, I'm not perfect. Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so just as Jacob wrestled the angels, so Christians have been wrestling with these words of Christ. Because even on our best day, we fall woefully short, do we not? Can we start 2023 by being honest here this morning? This is a high standard. This is a high bar. And this leads Christians down a path of what do we do with these words? Does Christ actually believe, think that we could live up to this standard? And there have been three major errors in attempting to interpret this Sermon on the Mount, and I want to lay them, for you before, lay them before you, and then I want to tell you what I believe is the fourth way and the faithful way to interpret this sermon. The first error belongs to a group of a doctrinal a scheme called dispensationalism. If you don't know that word, that's okay. The funny thing is you probably are a dispensationalist and you don't even know it. That's for another discussion. But this this error, the first error, belongs to this way of looking at the Bible called dispensationalism. And this group teaches, this interpretation model teaches that these laws are not for the church age, but rather these are the laws for the future kingdom age when Christ returns and establishes a literal thousand-year reign on the earth. That this is not for the church age, this is not for us today, there's no way that this could be for us. Look at how difficult this is. This has to be the law that will govern God's people during the future millennial reign of Christ. Therefore, we just sort of wait until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom and then We can dust off Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and start obeying it. Now, there's some real problems with this. I'll I'll only lay a few before you. Number one, this is the passage where Jesus teaches that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So if this is for a future kingdom age, then Christians aren't the salt of the earth and the light of the world today. Well, I'm sorry, but we're called to be the salt and the light. That is a major error. Jesus, John the Baptist, the apostles who came and proclaimed the gospel after Jesus, all were emphatically clear, the kingdom of God has arrived. It is here. Jesus established his kingdom. So this is not the law for a future kingdom age. So then people go on to number two. They say, these commandments are only to show us God's holiness and the impossibility of living up to his standard. the law, These laws and the Old Testament law like it show us our need for a savior. It was never Christ's intention that we actually try to keep these laws. They were only given to us that we might recognize our sinful state and turn to Christ as our savior. There's a lot of people who hold to that view of the Sermon on the Mount. It shows us our sinful state and our need for Christ As Savior. It does that, but I believe it is is intended to be more than that. I'll show you why here in a second. That's the second error. The third is what it belongs to theologically, theologically liberalism. Theological liberalism denies the miracles. They deny the inspiration of Scripture. They deny the resurrection of Christ. Um... They, they look at this, so, so therefore they deny the new birth, and they take this and they interpret the Sermon on the Mount sort of like a social gospel or a social justice gospel which strips Christianity of personal redemption and salvation and holds this up simply as a list of morals. Therefore, salvation is to be found not as a work of grace received by faith, but rather by keeping the commandments. This is simply modern-day Phariseeism, that you can earn your own righteousness. And so there's those who try to apply this as a works-based righteousness. All of this confusion about how to interpret this sermon led John Stott to say that the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. Those are the three errors in interpretation, but the fourth one and the, the faithful one, I believe, and I believe that you will see this as we work our way through it, and as we give careful study to the words of Christ, What becomes readily apparent, I believe, is that our Lord does intend for us to obey these commandments. So that even the closing words of the book of Matthew, Jesus' closing words in Matthew, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me, therefore go make disciples of every nation, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Are we really to believe that Matthew closes his gospel with these words of Christ which say, go into all the world and teach the nations all of my commandments but we're to think that we're not to teach them Matthew 5, 6, and 7? No, I believe Christ intends for us to receive these as his commandments to us and that we should endeavor and strive to obey them. And what a great way to begin 2023 by reading through this, by studying it, by by endeavoring to apply it. How can we do that? How can we possibly do this? How can we possibly obey these commandments, this standard of morality, this bar that is set so high? And what this sermon highlights for us as we look at its demands that on the surface may seem impossible for us to keep, it shines the spotlight for us on the absolute necessity of the new birth. The absolute necessity of being born again and being filled with the spirit of God. Amen. You see, because in my own strength, I, I cannot do these things. I could, I could try, I could clench my fist till my knuckles are white, but I could never do it in my own strength. But when by the spirit of God, I have been born again, I've been filled with his power. I've been filled with the very spirit and power of the one who uttered these words. When the one who walked out of the grave has poured his power into my life, by the strength of God, we can obey his word. As we walk not according to our flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8, but according to the Spirit. But you must be born again. You must have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And for us to read these commandments and to not read them as a law that we are under but read them as a grace from God given to us to show us how God's people are to live. For us to to receive them that way, we must be born again. There must be a fundamental change at the core of our being. Because the natural man, the Bible says, is at enmity with God. But those who have been born again by the Spirit of God We look at God's law and we say they are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. This is not a law that I live under to earn my righteousness, but no, because I have received the righteousness of Christ, because I have received salvation, which is a gift, because I have received it by faith, I now have the power to obey the commands of God. You have the power to live this sermon if you are born again. You have that power. It would be wrong for me to to lower the bar and tell you to live beneath the bar. What, What I'm called to do is to tell you if you are born again, you're filled with a new spirit. If you are born again, you have God's power living inside of you. And this commandment given to us is to set God's people apart from the world. Remember the Old Testament? That that, the, the nations, the surrounding peoples would look at God's covenant people and say, look at the God they serve. That the way that they live together and interact together, the way that they were blessed, the, the way that, that God's law separated them was to draw God's, uh, the, the nation's attention to them in the same way the church has been set apart from the world by the word of God. And as we, through the power of the spirit of God, live out the commands of scripture, it sets up a new culture, distinct from the world, different values from the world, And when people mistreat us, when people do wrong to us, and instead of us responding in kind, but instead we love them and we pray for them, they get a taste of the kingdom of heaven. They get a taste of our king. And you and I are called to live that way and to take the kingdom of God everywhere we go because we are living in submission to God, our King. This is what God was trying to do through the uh, Old Testament. But now that Christ has died and risen again and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he's pouring out his spirit now on all flesh, filling us with his power, we can now live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Distinct from the world. Living under the blessing of God. The new birth is essential. Jesus begins the sermon. We'll start getting into it next week. He begins the sermon with the characteristics of those who have been born again, those who have received salvation. What a believer looks like, their character, their heart that has been changed. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. We need God to replace what Ezekiel calls the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And even at times, those of us who who have been born again, who have received the spirit of God, sometimes our heart becomes hard as well. And it's words like these that soften our hearts and help us to be tender towards the Lord. Sometimes in church, we can become self-righteous. I I, I know that's shocking to you, but it it does happen from time to time. Well, when you read these words, because if if Christ is not working through me, if his spirit is not in my life, there is no hope for me. There, There is no way I could ever live up to this or hope to implement any of this. it it highlights my desperate need to be in fellowship and communion with the living God who will sustain me moment by moment with his power. Because without him, I can do nothing. But with him, all things are possible. And so as we move into this new year, as we start today in this place gathered with God's people, God's spirit is here. He promises to be with us. That we would recognize what this is. This is his new law for his new kingdom of which you and I are a part. But we cannot keep these commandments in our own strength. If we are going to be faithful to the covenant that he has made with us, we must rely on his spirit every single day. Not a day of this year can go by where I am not leaning on, leaning into, engaging with my creator. Otherwise, I'll live unfaithfully to him. I'll live unfaithful to the covenant. But with his power, with his strength, God is setting us apart from the world to be a city on a hill, a light shining forth with something unique, with something distinct that showcases the glory of our God as part of his kingdom.